Good morning. Good to see everyone. Here's how it's going to work today. We are going to begin with the scriptures up on the screens because they'll be combined, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then we are going to be in the physical Bibles for some passages to read along together in Luke. So you're going to need a Bible nearby you. If you don't have one, there should be one under the seat in front of you. But for our time to start, you're going to need the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. Why don't you grab that and I'll draw your attention to the fill in the blank. I want to say hi to everybody watching online. Hi to you. Uh, We're excited that you're with us as well. Uh, We are in part 57 of our Being Jesus series, and I titled today's message, Me, 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 and I'll tell you why here in a moment. Uh, Let me begin by sharing this. We were created to glorify God, and we are blessed to distribute. Let me say that again. We are born or created to glorify God. That's why we're here. And we are blessed, we are resourced, we are given things in order that we might distribute that in the rest of the world. Why doesn't God just give us all more than we need? Why do we need to distribute anything? Why do we need to share? Is it because of scarcity? Is it that God doesn't give enough? Uh, My daughter got into a uh, a debate at her school uh, this, this last week. She was sharing a little bit about God and, and some other kids picked up on it and they were all kind of going back and forth and, and they were saying, you know, well, if God was real and God was good, then, then why, is there, why are there so many starving people in Africa? My daughter's like, uh, Dad, can you help me out here? So she's texting me and I'm, and I'm getting the thing and I'm firing back to her and And I said, well, honey, here's how I see it. I don't think that the issue in Africa is one of scarcity. I think it's one of corruption. And I said, I'm quite convinced that the continent of Africa, as beautiful and wonderful as it is, I believe it can support the people on it. The problem is is some people are keeping other people from food. And I said, There is not a sharing concept. There is a have and the have nots. And I said, if God put 10 apples on the counter behind you and there were starving people in front of you and you blocked them from getting the apples, is that God's fault or is that your fault? I don't believe that God just creates scarcity, although I do think that God designs lean for a reason. I think he designs lean so that we are forced to share. Because when we share, we unite together. When we give to one another, there's community. There's relationship built. I've shared with you before that need is a bonding agent. Well, helping out is also a bonding agent. And I think that God gives an amount so that we collectively have enough. But if some of us consume all of it, if some of us hoard all of it, then there's going to be a backlash on the other side. You would say, well, it just seems like God should just give everybody an overage and and there's just all this waste. I, I don't think that's what God does because then we would all be autonomous. We would all just go into our own little worlds, play with our money, have everything we need, and we would never contact another human soul. 
we need to give away. We need to be forced to be unselfish. Back in the 90s, I was reading a Dear Abby column for some bizarre reason. I don't know why. But it, there was something that was said there that I never, I never forgot because it, it made me kind of crack up. And, and this dating advice to young ladies was this. Ladies, don't ever date a dude that does not own a plant. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? She said, if he is so self-absorbed that he can't even keep a plant alive, you want no part of this guy. And it made me laugh. And I was going, okay, I get it. I get it. So if the idea, because a plant you got to take care of, you, you can't just leave it or it's going to die. So there has to be an other awareness, at least for a plant. Now, if we up the ante and we bring in a pet, right? You know that if you have a pet, you got to feed that pet, give that pet water. You got to give that pet a walk and you do not get to go on vacation whenever you want to go on vacation, right? You got to make sure somebody's watching that dog or watching that cat or making sure that the fish doesn't go belly up. You know what I mean? You got to make sure that you're protecting and providing and it's not all about you. It's focusing on something else. Let's raise the bar one more time. Imagine you have kids. Once you have kids, game over. You are not it anymore. It is all them. They are scheduling everything and everything is designed around them. And it is, it is demanded selflessness. You, you cannot be any good at being a parent if the children are not your prime focus. And what I found is having kids makes you grow up a whole lot. And it's because of the forced selflessness. Because I think that, that God really doesn't like selfishness. And I think that he will design ways to make sure we look more and more like his image. Greed is what Jesus is about to talk about. And greed is a problem. Greed is insidious. It's very sneaky. And it gets into places that you would not have imagined. And maybe for you, it is greed with money. Maybe that is your issue. I mean, that's the obvious one, right? I mean, when we start talking about, uh, hey, you know what? We give back to the Lord. Do you immediately get tense? Why, why are you getting tense? What do you care? You got money. So what if you give it away? What does that bother you? Why is that an issue for you? Why is it that you're trying to hang on to it so much? What does it mean to you? What does it represent for you? And I look at the ideas in my life, and especially in messages like this, and I start analyzing down to the lowest detail, and I'm going, man, greed creeps into every area of my life. I mean, let's even take the money thing. Let's say I come out of the Starbucks drive-thru, and someone is there that needs some help. Let's say that they do, they're, they are under-resourced, we'll call it. Let's say that, that they don't have enough for food that day. And the Lord taps me on the shoulder and he's like, hey, Lance, I want you to give him that 20 bucks in your wallet that I gave you. You called it withdrawing from the ATM, whatever, whatever. I call it, I gave it to you. And you got 20 bucks in your wallet. Let's say I actually give the money to the guy. What was with my heart on why I locked up the minute God started talking about it? Why was it even resisted? Why was it that I had to go through all these mental gymnastics to figure out if I would part with my money? 
What is that all about? Why is there such an adherence to my stuff? How did greed, which I think I'm a pretty loving person, I think I'm really into people, I think that I design my life around caring for others, and yet I greed still got in. How did that happen? It's embarrassing if you analyze that way. If you start looking at all the times that you are greedy, maybe it's not even money. What if it's attention? Are you craving attention so much that you're greedy that you dominate every conversation? You won't let anyone else in. It always has to be about what you want to talk about. It always has to be your perspective. No one is allowed to have any other time. It can't be about them. You'll find some way to turn everything back to you. Why are you so greedy for attention? Is it power or control? Nobody else has an idea that's worth considering. You know everything. You're always right. And so you dominate every environment. Your house has to be the way you want it to be. You know, the office place has to be how you want it to be. Everything has to get done on your time frame. You dominate other people because of your control issue. Is that where greed is coming in? Is it just tangible stuff? You find your security in stuff around you and you get super irritated when other people have stuff that you don't have or you want. Where is greed creeping into our lives? Greed either comes from selfishness or fear, neither of which is acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. But a lot of it is dominated by self-obsession. The Bible calls us towards humility, and we tend towards self-obsession. So I need all of us to write down the fill in the blank on our sheet because I can tell it to you. But until you write it down, it's not going to soak in. Here you go. It's not all about me. Got to write that one down. It's not all about me. We got to break that and allow the Lord to move into that area. Why? Because there was a guy named Lucifer who was pretty awesome. And he was pretty impressed by himself. And he thought he could be God, tried to take over God. God shut him down, resisted him, cast him to earth, and now he's Satan or who we know as the devil. And so if pride and greed got a hold of that guy, you think we're any better? I don't think so. Let's begin with our first passage up on the screens. Begins like this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came came up to Jesus with her sons, James and John. And kneeling before him, they asked him for something, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Pause. Is that a setup? Right? (laughs) I mean, they didn't even say what it was. We want you to do whatever we're about to say. That's, That's manipulating, right? I mean, you're using who you are. Obviously, they felt comfortable approaching the Lord and asking something like that. We're going to find out who they are here in a moment. But they're playing off their relationship saying, whatever I'm about to ask, I want you to authorize. It sounds like most of our prayer times, doesn't it? You know what I'm saying? Hey, God. And we start out, God, you're good. And he's like, are you buttering me up? What do you, what do you want? I mean, you're, you're going to go off on all these things and you're just trying to get to the point where you asked me for something. What do you want? The other thing that I thought was interesting, are they using Jesus or are they just being practical? 
In other words, are they trying to manipulate him or are they just very clear that unless he does it, it's never going to get done? So you got to go ask Jesus for something because he's the king of all creation and it's way too big for you to handle. You don't have the authorization to fix it. Maybe it's both. <laughs> maybe they know that they need his help, but maybe they're also being a little bit manipulating. I would suggest it is both. Watch how Jesus responds. And he said to them, what do you want? There's no promise. He's not like, no, I'm going to give you it. No, he's calling them on it going, you tell me what you want. And then I'll figure out whether I'm going to do it or not. Now, does Jesus really know what they want? Probably. What does he need them to do? He needs them to say it out loud. Because when we say stuff out loud, sometimes we're embarrassed by our requests, right? Uh, try sharing all your prayer requests with your friends all of them, right? Yeah. And you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, some of your prayer requests are like, Lord, please allow me to be smarter than Bob. You know? <laughs> and then Bob's like, what? You know? <laughs> what do you want? She, the mom said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. And the boys jump in on it and they said to him, yes, Lord, grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left in your glory. Who are these people? Man, what are you, what are you thinking? What are they really asking for? They're saying, Lord, we know that you're the king. We know that you're going to rule all the earth. We want to make sure that we have the right and left side of power. We want to be the biggest dogs in the kingdom underneath you. Who would dare to ask that? And what in the world is mom doing here? Who is she? Why are these guys are like, hey, mom, we should, we should bring mom in here. You know, he's going to listen to mom. You know, we always listen to mom. He should listen to mom. You know, why is she here? Okay, so let's begin with who they are. Y'all know who James and John are, right? Okay, here's what we know about James and John. They got called in early. They were the fishermen guys. They did a fisherman business with their dad, Zebedee. And they did a fisherman business with Peter, right? Uh, likely Peter and Andrew. And so they, they were the ones that were on the seashore that Jesus walked by and said, I'll make you fishers of men. So we're familiar kind of with them. But do you remember also about the boys? They got the nickname Sons of Thunder. Do you remember they're the ones that wanted to call down fire and burn everyone alive? Okay, these guys are hardcore. And so they have no problem asking hardcore things. Where do you think they got it from? Mom, that's exactly where they got it from, right? So if mom's willing to do it, they're willing to do it. They were raised that way. And these guys are also in the inner circle of Jesus' friendships. So he had 12 guys that he lived, basically lived with for, th for three years. But then he had Peter, James, and John, who was his inner three, that he took into all the special areas. They got to see certain miracles. They got to be at the Mount of Transfiguration. They're going to be in a special area with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They are his closest pals. We later know that John is nicknamed the Beloved. He is Jesus' best friend. It is believed that John was the youngest of all the disciples. He ends up living a really long time. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But who's the mom? If you examine the three accounts of the women at the foot of the cross, you begin a game of elimination. And you find out that her name is Salome. She's not only their mom, she's Jesus' aunt. She is 
Mary's sister. That means that James and John are Jesus' first cousins. This is a family thing. Why would she have the guts to go up to him? Because she's his aunt. And so she walks up and she's like, my nephew, you know, family's important to us. And you know that these are your first cousins. I mean, I remember all the times my, I and your mom played together and right. She has all this family history and she's saying, make sure you take care of my boys. You wouldn't want to disappoint your auntie, would you? See what I'm saying? There's a little bit of manipulation going on there. Do they know what they're asking for? Why would they think that there are right and left to the throne? Why, why would they think that? Why would they? Oh, because Jesus started it. Let me, let me read this passage to you. It's in Matthew 19, 27. It says this. Peter said in reply to Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Meaning, man, we gave it all up. We're all in with you. Are we just going to be destitute? What is for us in the future? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. Oh, that's where it came from. And you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children's or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So where did they get the idea that they would have a throne? Jesus. Jesus said, you're all going to have thrones. They just wanted the best thrones. They just wanted to make sure that they're all, hey man, if you're just going to do it like randomly, we would like to ask first that we could sit right next to you. They know that the king's right hand was the absolute power place. The one that was his right hand man. But if there's two equals, you could put one on the left side and there would be no uh, inferiority. It could be equal power right and left. So they said, can we sit there? That sounds awfully selfish. And, and I bet there is some selfishness and ambition in there, right? In some ways, you got to give them some credit because they're quite convinced he's going to be king. And they're like, you know what? We know you win. Well, there's no qualms about that. When you win, we want some good seats. But also you got to look at it where it's a little bit awkward because Jesus just told them that he's going to die. Are they going, hey, uh, real quick, before you die, <laughs> I just want to have a real quick talk about your will. That's, that's it. I want to know whether or not you wrote it down, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. That, that's an awkward conversation. But the kingdom is coming and they want the right and left spots. But do they have any idea what they're talking about? What does it mean to have the right and left spots around Jesus? By the way, where does that leave Peter? Peter has already been named as the leader of the group by Jesus, and they're bumping him out of his spot, right? Because if indeed he is the leader of the crew, maybe he needs to be sitting there. They don't really care. They went ahead and just edged in there and had a little private conversation with the Lord to see if they could secure their spots. But they don't know what they're asking for. How do we know that? Next line. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. <laughs> I know, pretty deep, yes? They want the right and left spots of Jesus. You know, it's funny because some guys had the right and left spots of Jesus on the cross. You remember that? Oh, that's right. 
There were thieves on both sides of him, hanging there to their death. Hmm. I don't think that was the spot these guys thought that they wanted, right? They had no idea what they were asking about. Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? Are you going to be baptized with the baptism of which I am baptized? Do you think you can handle that? They said, yeah, we do. What does that mean? Drink the cup, be baptized with. Uh, It all comes from an ancient concept where a king would have all his invited guests in there and he would kick off the banquet by sharing a cup of wine. And so what he would say was, hey, partake in my blessings of this dinner I invite you in. And he would start with a cup. So the cup became share in my experience. Now you could share in my experience of good, like blessings, or you could share an experience of bad, like persecution. Jesus is talking about bad. In the Old Testament, it would talk about the cup of God's wrath. Meaning there was an experience God was about to bring upon the people. Were you going to be involved in that or not? To use the phrase baptize, you got to get out of the religious sense. You got to get out of the water sense and just think of immersion in something. Are you able to be immersed in what I'm about to walk into? Can you handle the tsunami that's going to overwhelm me and overwhelm you? You think you can handle that, boys? And they said, yes, we do. Do they know what they're saying? I don't know to what degree they know what they're saying. I'm not saying they're not ready to die. There are going to be multiple times where Peter will say, I'm ready to die for you. Where Thomas says, I'm ready to die for you. We're all ready to die for you. These guys were all in. They were willing to die. So maybe they did know that part, but I don't think they understood fully what it meant. Jesus said, You know, actually the cup that I drink, yep, you will drink it. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. That's a prophecy. Did that come true? Yeah. James was the first one to die. James, the older brother, was the first martyr of the 12. He he had his head cut off by Herod Agrippa I. He was put into, into prison. He got his head cut off. Peter was put into prison, but he got let out by an angel. And you're like, Lord, what are you doing? Why does James die and Peter gets set free? There's no answer to that. John, the youngest, lives to almost 100, according to tradition. But he's tortured. He's exiled. He's persecuted. He's kicked out. So is it harder to get your head cut off or to live a long life of terror? I don't know. But I'll tell you, I don't think mom realized what she was asking for. Do you understand that mom is going to be at the foot of the cross when she realizes what happens to Jesus? She watches him after he's been beat unrecognizable as a man, hang there, can't get a breath, ripped apart and dies before her very eyes then hears about her older son being beheaded by a bad guy and then knows that her younger son is getting all sorts of heat 
When she asked for the right and left side, did she know what she was asking for? I don't think so. And I don't know if they did either. Christ used this cup analogy quite a bit. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had some talks with the Father? He's sweating great drops of blood. He is completely stressed out, tore up inside, knowing what it means to die on a cross for the sins of the world. And so he cries out to God, Father, is there any other way that this cup can pass from me? Can, is there any way this experience that you have set up, can we do it another way? Don't get me wrong, Father. I'm going totally with your plan, and I refuse to let my children die, so I'll do what's necessary, but I'm freaking out about it, and I would love to do it another way. And then he gets stonewalled. There's, there's no answer. So then he goes and he asks again, Father, is there any way this cup can pass? Still no answer. Goes in a third time. Hey, anyway, no answer. They said, all right, here we go. And he moved forward. When he gets arrested in the garden, Peter goes ballistic, takes out his sword, hacks the dude's ear off. Jesus has to stick the ear back on and says, Peter, put away your sword. What are you doing? Do you really think I shouldn't take this cup my father gave me? Do you understand the cup analogy is everywhere? Will I not receive the experience that my father mandated for me? And then Jesus said, hey, you guys, you're going to walk with me. This is going to be rough. But you know what about your request to sit at my right hand and at my left? Yeah, that's not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Guys, you should know well enough that I am here on the father's behalf. He makes the calls. I just carry it out. And there's a couple of things I don't know. I don't know when I'm coming back. I don't know who's sitting on my right and left. There's a bunch of stuff. These are not presents that I'm handing out to my best buddies. This is how the father organizes it out. And if the father organizes it based on you get a better seat if you suffer more, I don't know who's going to suffer more. So I don't know if you really want that seat. That's up to my dad. And when the 10 heard about it, uh-oh, who's the 10? Oh, that's all the rest of the guys. You did what? When the 10 heard about it, when there was a leak, right? When the 10 heard about them trying to get ahead of them and get a good seat, they began to be indignant. They began to get furious at the two brothers, James and John. Now, are they just irritated? How dare you? Or were they jealous? Right? Every commentary I read on this thought they were jealous. And, and I kind of lean that way too because you tend to get more agitated at somebody that does something wrong that you struggle with. You know what I'm talking about? If, if someone else is super cocky and arrogant and you're just so angry at them, it's because you're cocky and arrogant inside. You just keep trying to hold it in. So they're probably going, man, I've been stopping asking Jesus for a good spot for the last year. And you guys go in and do it? How dare you? You're like, dude, your heart's just as messed up as mine. I only went public with it. I think there was some jealousy. I think that why should they even care? If they were truly humble, who cares where they sit? But they weren't, right? And you know whether or not you're humble whether or not someone else is able to demean you without a reaction. Hmm. Jesus called them to him and he said to them, guys, 
you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but that's not how it's going to be with our team. That is not to be so among you. Why is he calling a family meeting? Because disunity is a serious problem. In less than six months, he's going to hand over the entire ministry to these yahoos. We're all arguing about who's awesome. They're going to argue about who's greatest again right before the Last Supper. While they're all trying to figure out who's great and who did better miracles and, and who has a better preaching style. And while they're doing all that garbage, Jesus is about to hand them the leadership of the entire church. So he's got to put in some parameters and go, guys, this is garbage. What are you doing? We don't do it like that. The world thinks somebody is more important the more people serve them. Man, it, it's the same way. The CEO is a big deal because whatever he says, people will carry out. The president of the United States is a big deal because everybody waits on him and his word Right? I mean, we have all these the celebrities are a big deal and they're super valued as important in our culture because they can afford to own other people. He said, we don't do that. That's not how I examine. That's not how I judge. That's not how I figure out who's the leaders. It doesn't matter how many people serve you. It's quite the opposite. Whoever would be great among you, if you really want to be great, Amongst the church, amongst the people of God, if you really want to be great, you must be a servant, a diakonos, a voluntary servant. Hmm. Whoever would be first, do you want to be like the top of the pile? Do you want to be the, the biggest dog? Do you want to be number one? Is that what you want? All right, let me tell you how that's going to work out. You got to be a slave of everybody. A doulos has no rights anymore. You don't live for yourself. Nothing about you matters. You don't even have an identity. You don't even exist. You want to be number one? Lose yourself. Because it can't be about you. Or I'm not putting you there. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, which he deserved as a king, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is to buy back to set someone free. Jesus said, I came here to do the will of my Father, to serve everyone, to die for your sins that you might be free. That's what I did. The whole idea that you're arguing about this and you're my guys, that's embarrassing. We don't do that. You do not lord it over each other. You do not go, well, I got a title better than you. We don't play that. We are servants. That's how it works. Let me give you an idea on how much this kind of soaks in. It soaks in in the church and it soaks in in the culture. Uh, we were talking about elders. How are elders selected? We scan the body and we look for primarily two things. We look for heart and we look for applicability. In other words, we know what's on the docket. We know what it requires. We know what the job entails. And there's some people, their hearts are brilliant but it's not a good fit for the job. And then there's people who are brilliant for the job, but they're just not good people. 
We look for heart. What is heart? We look for character. We look for a servant. Why do we look for servants? Because it has to be that way. Here's what an elder does. You don't even know who most of them are, right? They're in obscurity. They're doing meetings till the lights literally go out on them. They don't get paid. They're all volunteer. They have their own lives, their own jobs, their own families. And yet they're over here serving, making significant decisions, stressing out about you, praying about you, trying to make sure everything's right under their responsibility before the father. And they sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and no one knows and no one cares. How in the world do you not have a servant do that job? They would freak out. Unless you're willing to be a servant and go, I'm just here to do what I'm called to do. That would be so agitating to you. Oh man, I'm an elder and man, you know, all these people would be like, oh, you're the elder, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Dude, you're walking by them in the hallway and you have no idea who they are. So no, it's not showy. It's not fancy. So that's why we look for that. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. If you need a quick way there, it's page 871. The Bible's under the seat in front of you, 871. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Jesus has a couple other stories for us. This one's going back a ways. Jesus was blasting the religious leaders and he was doing some teaching publicly. And, and this story came up. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over y'all? That's plural you. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What's happening here? Well, in the Old Testament, God set up an inheritance system where the firstborn son would get a double portion. The problem is, is in later stories, God would reverse that and he would give the greater to the younger. And there was all kinds of issues there. So nobody was quite clear on who gets what. And so if there was ever an issue of greed, they would go to the rabbis and they would say, you got to help us out. We got a dispute between us. And you know, whenever money gets involved, it starts getting nasty. And so sure enough, they'd say, you got to settle this for us. And normally the rabbis would. Jesus said, I want no part of this conversation. Could I do this? Yes. Will I do this? No. Why? I can't even believe you're asking me the question. And he goes off on the issue of greed. So this guy's motivation is not right. Both the brothers are there. Both of them are probably messed up. And Jesus said, I don't even want to get into this. The motivation here is greed and I'm not okay with it. He said, let me tell you a parable in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Pause. Here's his problem. Oh my goodness, I have way too much money. Oh, that's difficult, isn't it? A bunch of people are like, I wish I had that problem, right? He's sitting there going, oh, I have so much cash. I have nowhere to put it. No bank could possibly hold all my money. So what's he going to do with that? He said to himself, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns. I'll just build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Great plan. In four verses, 11 personal pronouns are used. I, me, my, right? This guy is so self-obsessed, it never occurs to him to share. 
It never occurs to him there's an afterlife. It never occurs to him that there is God. It never occurs to him anything outside of his own world. He said, man, I got so much cash. How do I hang on to it all? Uh, Maybe you're not supposed to. Why did things go so well for him? Do you remember in the story why it said that he was super wealthy? Because he starts out rich. So it's not like he just got rich. Oh, he's been rich. Now, rich dude gets a whole bunch of more riches. But how did it happen? It said the land produced what? Plentifully. Are we in charge of what the land produces? As a matter of fact, the Bible says you can plant, you can water, you can do all kinds of prep of the soil, but what comes out of that ground, that's God's business, right? I mean, if farmers could really control how much the land produces, don't you think they'd produce more? There is a lot of, we'll see how it goes in farming. This guy only got rich because God blessed his land. This is where we all go, wow, I'm so glad I'm not an agricultural thing. I'm the one that actually went to school. I'm the one that became a self-made man. I'm the one who is the business brilliant. I'm the one, right? And y'all think that you have your riches because you work for it. Guess what? No, you don't. Yes, I did. I was the one. No, God gave you the brain. God gave you the environment. God gave the ability to even get to the school, to get the diploma, to get where you're at. God gave you. You think you work harder than everybody else? No, you don't. Oh, I work all the time. I'm working, blah, blah. I'm a workaholic, blah, blah. Let me take you to hang out with the manual laborers working in the field. And I want to tell you who works hard. And it ain't you. It ain't me. It's those cats out in the field. It's those guys working from morning till night with their own hands, ripping their bodies apart, wrecking their knees. They're the ones killing themselves and they don't have one one hundredth of what you have in the bank. So don't tell me you're a harder worker. No, you're not. The only reason is it's the grace of God that allowed you to have anything. The reason why it's so hard to let go of our money is we think we own it. The reason why it's so hard to let it go is because we think we earned it. I understand you work hard. And I want to give you credit for that. But please don't match yourself up against someone else and say that you work harder than them. And that's why you're so wealthy. That's not true. It says, this is God's response, fool. Oh, hey, there you go. Verse 20. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Why is he a fool? Dude, you spent all this time figuring out how you can hang on to all your stuff. Oops, you died. Now where'd it go? Oh, look, I'm going to distribute it anyway. You either could have had a say in where it goes, or I can rip it out of your hands and hand it to a bunch of other people. What do you want to do? You spent all your time trying to amass, 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 and then how much did you carry in your casket? None. So you're a fool. You don't know what's going on. You had all these plans and they fell on your head. That's a drag for you. And you know what? You walked out of this world with no understanding of God. This is not good for you, my friend. 
Then let's go to chapter 14, verse 7. Chapter 14, verse 7 in Luke. Jesus was invited over to, for dinner at the ruler of a Pharisee's house. And this was a super fancy dinner with fancy people there. And they brought him there just to analyze and try to trap him. But Jesus went anyway. Now, he told a parable to those people who were invited to this fancy party when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. All right, here's what happens. People would arrive early and they'd scramble for good seats. The best seats are anywhere near the host. So if you knew where the host was sitting, you'd go try to get there early and sit there so you would look more important. The further away from the host, the less important you were. And this is what Jesus said to them. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, the host, and he who invited you both may come and say to you, hey, you got to give your place to that person. And when you, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. What was his point? Guys, let's be practical. You scramble for the best seat, you know, and then everybody else comes in, they fill in all the seats. And then all of a sudden, who comes late? Super important guy. And you're sitting in his seat. And in front of everyone, the host has to go, uh, come here for a second. Rick, can you, can you stand up real quick? He needs your seat. Can you go sit down there? You know how embarrassing that is? He's like, really? Don't let your greed embarrass you. When you start getting lost in greed and you start grabbing and grabbing and grabbing and wanting more and wanting more, it's going to embarrass you. You'll end up saying something you should have never said. You'll end up doing things you should have never done. And it will twist and distort your view. He said, let me tell you how you should do it. Verse 10. When you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's what Jesus did not do. He did not give them a trick on how to look awesome at the party, right? Because here's what some of you little distorted folks were just thinking. Oh, that's a great point, man. If you sit at the lowest place and then everybody fills in and the host looks over and sees you, he's like, what are you doing there? You're like, oh, I have no idea. Wow, that's funny. Am I in a low seat? Wow. And he's like, come up here. And you're like, oh, excuse me. Pardon me. Excuse me. As you're walking up to the head of the table. Jesus is not trying to make the twisted people more twisted. That's not what he's doing here. What he's saying is get over yourself and sit down wherever there's a seat and let it go. See, humility is not demeaning yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking less about yourself and forgetting yourself. When you are forced to examine yourself, you're allowed to say, God, you have done a great thing. You're allowed to glorify him and praise him for what he has created. When I look and assess myself and I say, God, you have blessed me in so many ways. I want to give you glory for that. I'm not demeaning myself. Oh, Lance, you're nothing. You're an idiot and blah, blah, blah. It's not about destroying my self-esteem. It's forgetting about myself entirely. You end up sitting at the party and everybody gets these seats and everything. And they're like, dude, why are you sitting there? And you're like, oh, the chair was open. <laughs> I was just thinking about y'all. You might want to be in this seat and this seat. And, and you're so busy serving everyone else. You're so busy looking and making sure they're okay. You totally forgot you came to the party. That's humility. 
Verse 12. He's, by the way, he also had something for the host. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Here's what Jesus did not say. He did not say, see, I, I knew we shouldn't have invited your mom. Okay? <laughs> that's, that's not what he said. He's not saying they shouldn't invite any of your friends to your house for dinner because this is not a regular dinner. Remember how I told you that there's a bunch of old games that would happen in ancient Israel and some of those games were the clean, unclean game and all that. Remember that? Well, there's another game. It's called the party game. And the party game still gets played sometimes today, but it's not as popular now as it was back then. The party game goes like this. It's a status thing. I'm going to invite a whole bunch of important people because I have a certain status. I'm going to invite you so that you're seen at the party. Then you're a big deal, but you have to invite me to your party. I will elevate you. Then you invite me and elevate me. And then I elevate you. And what we do is together, we climb the ladder of success and we look super impressive. Now, obviously some of that stuff does occur. Let's go to the Hollywood parties. Who's there? Who was seen? Who was pictured together? And if you get invited to the cool in party and you throw one, you're supposed to invite somebody else. This whole status grabbing thing, Jesus said, that's garbage. That's not what we do. We don't use people to gain status. He said, let me tell you how it should go. Verse 13. But when you give a feast, I want you to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Here's how you should use your influence, your wealth, your resources. Take care of those who do not have it. And if you really want me to reward you, make sure they cannot repay you. Here's the problem with a lot of us. Greed is masked with this phrase. It's a win-win. Why does it always have to be a win-win? Why can't it just be a win for them? Why does it have to be a win-win? Oh, I'm just being brilliant. I'm just thinking of all the ways I can bless you and I can get tons of stuff as well. It doesn't always have to be a win-win. Sometimes you need to give away stuff and get nothing. And you got to do it on purpose. That's going to take some thinking because you have to kind of purposefully or intentionally figure out a way to bless someone who's not going to return the favor. As I told you, this stuff's sneaky. I mean, I look at, I look at the times when I'm with a bunch of other pastors and, and then we're in this big group and they start highlighting what these other pastors are doing and I'm there clapping and I'm I'm you know, feeling good for them and I'm praising them and encouraging them. And there's still a part of me that's going, well, I'm kind of important too. You know what I'm saying? That's embarrassing. You know, just begin to look at what we're craving and what we're greedy about and what we're hoarding and what we're hanging on to. And Jesus is going, whoa, 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 what are you doing? I built you to glorify me. I'm resourcing you to distribute, not to hang on to. I will take care of you. I want you to benefit and share with everyone else. There are enough resources to go around 
They just happen to be in a very small percentage of our pocket. That's the challenge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness and your patience. Lord, thank you as well for a reminder of how insidious and sneaky this stuff is. That God, it seems to catch us off guard. We don't want to be that way. As a matter of fact, we're embarrassed about being that way. And yet that way we are. And so I ask, Lord, that you'd help us to recognize that and change and turn away from that and and stop using people. Stop hoarding stuff. Stop pushing everyone else away. God, may you be glorified. In us. May we make you look good. May we make you shine as we give and distribute and share and are generous and are kind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time.